John Stott was probably the most influential evangelical Anglican pastor and theologian of the 20th century. He, he died in 2011 at the age of 90. He was the quintessential Englishman. He was erudite and refined, yet passionate and bold. I can't agree with everything that he ever wrote, but he was a giant in the faith and he remained faithful to the end. His commentary on the book of Romans is a masterpiece. It expertly treads that fine line between exposition and application, between technical, exegetical scholarship on the one hand and this warm pastoral devotion on the other. So I want to begin this final sermon in Romans 11 and this final sermon in the doctrinal portion of this magnificent letter. Chapters 12 to 16 are just filled with practical application of the theology that we've been unpacking in chapters 1 to 11. I want to begin this last sermon in Romans 11 by quoting from Stott's comments at the beginning of his section on Romans 11:33 to 36, which he just simply entitled doxology, which means worship. I was actually sorely tempted to read the section its entirety, but it would have taken too long. It's just that good. Stott writes this, for 11 chapters, Paul has been giving his comprehensive account of the gospel. Step by step, he has shown how God has revealed his way of putting sinners right with himself. How Christ died for our sins and was raised for our justification. How we are united with Christ in his death and resurrection. How the Christian life is lived not under the law but in the spirit. And how God plans to incorporate the fullness of Israel and of the Gentiles into his new community. Paul's horizons are vast. He takes in time and eternity, history and eschatology, justification, sanctification, glorification. But now he stops out of breath. Analysis and argument must give way to adoration. Before Paul goes on to outline the practical implications of the gospel, he falls down before his God and he worships. That line is, I think, an allusion to Exodus 34. I think that's what Stott had in his mind when he, when he wrote it. You remember the scene from Exodus 34. Moses is atop Mount Sinai, and he's asked God to show him his glory. To which God responds, Exodus 33, 19, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name of the Lord. That is, I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Well, early the next morning, Moses cut two tablets of stone, and he ascended the mountain to meet with God. And Exodus 34 and verse 5 begins this way. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood before Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, 
keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Then Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Is that not an apt description of what Paul has done in Romans? Paul has explored in this magnificent book the depths of human sin and rebellion. He's done nothing less than to charge the entire human race with idolatry and blasphemy and treason against their God. That's Romans 1 to 3. Just like Moses in Exodus condemned the people of Israel for their idolatry with the golden calf in Exodus 32. In Romans, Paul has unveiled the mystery of the justice and the mercy of God, showing how God's justice and mercy are reconciled in the death of his son. That's Romans 3 to 5. Just as in Exodus 34, God revealed his justice and his mercy to Moses. Paul has explained in Romans 6 and 7 the relationship between the law and grace. And he has explored life in the spirit and the effectual, unconquerable covenant love of God for his people. Romans 8. Both of which are themes that just permeate the book of Exodus. Finally, in Romans 9 through 11, God has, or Paul has examined the sovereign freedom of God in both his mercy and in his wrath as it pertains to both Jew and Gentile. Even quoting from the Lord's words to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So here stands Paul at the end of Romans 11, Like Moses, atop the mountain of God, having witnessed the Holy Spirit testifying through his own pen of the strange and sovereign, the glorious and God-centered, the mysterious and magnificent ways of God. The goodness of God has passed before Paul in these 11 chapters of Romans, and through Paul, God has declared his name and his ways. And so what does Paul do at the end of Romans 11? Well, what did Moses do? The only thing they could do, they bowed down and they worshiped. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor or who has ever given to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things and to him be the glory forever. Amen, says Paul. Or as Stott wrote, analysis and argument... Romans 1 to 11, have given way to adoration. Indeed, must give way to adoration. My aim this morning is, by God's grace, that we would experience something of the wonder and the overwhelming awe that Moses and Paul experienced at the revelation of the glory of God. 
because that's what Romans 1 to 11 is. You recognize that's what we've been doing the last year and a half. We have been witness to the revelation of the glory of God. No less than if we had stood atop Mount Sinai ourselves and seen with our own eyes the holy fire. When you look upon these pages, you can see the glory of God. And therefore, you ought to bow with your face to the ground in worship. I'll read once more from Stott. He says, it is of great importance to note from Romans 1 to 11 that theology, that is, our belief about God, and doxology, that is, our worship of God, should never be separated. On the one hand, there can be no doxology without theology. It is not possible to worship an unknown God. All true worship is a response to the self-revelation of God in Christ and Scripture and arises from our reflection on who He is and what He has done. It was the tremendous truths of Romans 1 to 11 which have provoked Paul's outburst of praise. The worship of God is evoked, informed, and inspired by the vision of God. Worship without theology is idolatry. Hence the indispensable place of scripture in both public worship and private devotion. It is the word of God which calls forth the worship of God. On the other hand, says Stott, there should be no theology without doxology. There is something fundamentally flawed about a purely academic interest in God. God is not an appropriate object for cool, critical, detached, scientific observation and evaluation. No, the true knowledge of God will always lead us to worship as it did Paul. Our place is on our faces before him in worship. Those two paragraphs from John Stott pretty much encapsulate my pastoral philosophy and the heartbeat of my ministry. I am zealous that this church would both know, there's theology, and love, there's doxology, the God of Romans. A couple of weeks ago, I asked us if there was anything about our church that would make a Jewish neighbor or friend jealous if they, were attend, if they were to attend our worship service on Sunday morning after having attended their synagogue on Friday evening. Well, if there is, if there is anything about our church that would make that Jewish friend or neighbor jealous, I would want this to be it. After attending a service here, I would want them to walk away thinking these people are serious about knowing and loving God. Because an unbelieving Jew or Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or atheist does not know God and cannot love God. They worship a mystery. But we... Worship whom we know. Not fully. We don't know him fully. But we know him really and truly. The Jews don't have a book like Romans. 
Because God cannot be known apart from Christ. But we do have Romans. And for the last year and a half, we have climbed in order to reach this peak at the top of chapter 11. So we sit this morning atop the mountain. And it's time for us to bow low. So this morning, let's try to follow Paul's line of thought to find out what has brought him to such a soaring and passionate doxology and to ask how we can join him in those ecstatic heights of joy. Because I want to feel like this. In spite of all of the things going on this week in our nation, in the world, in the news, in our own church, in our own lives, I want to feel Romans 11, 33 to 36. I want to exult in a God that I can't fully know, but I can truly know. I want to rejoice in a God from whom come all things, including viruses, And through whom come all things, including salvation. And to whom are all things, so that he might be gloried both now and forevermore. I want to feel what Paul feels. Because I know what Paul knows. Paul begins in verse 33 with two awe-filled, joy-drenched, God-besotted exclamations. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. The first phrase of verse 33 contains three attributes which Paul is contemplating. His riches, his wisdom, and his knowledge. Paul first praises the depths of God's riches. He's probably using the same, or the term in the same way in which he used it earlier in the chapter back in verse 12 when he said, Now, if theirs, speaking of Israel, if Israel's trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, How much more riches will their full inclusion mean? So riches in this context, the context of Romans 11, clearly means the riches of God's grace and salvation in the fullest sense of the term. All of the abundant, generous, overflowing goodness that God freely bestows on those whom he saves. And the point of verse 33 is that God's riches flow from unfathomable depths. They're inexhaustible. The grace which God gives to his people is not limited. It's not rationed. It's lavish. It's free. It's overflowing. What joy would fill this church if we really believed that the omnipotent benevolence of God was unconditionally, unconditionally directed towards us in Christ? What holy, 
pleasure would radiate through our worship services if we really believed texts like Zephaniah 3. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. That's you. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. Why? Why should we, the true children of Abraham, by faith in Christ, sing aloud and shout and rejoice and exult with all of our heart? Because the Lord has taken away his judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. Because the king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Those are the depths of the riches of God. And we are the heirs of those riches. They are directed towards us. We stand to inherit from God full pardon from sin. Peace from all of our enemies, both inside and out. And the presence of God himself, the God who rejoices over us with gladness, who quiets us with his love, who exults over us with loud singing. That inheritance is what will make the Jews jealous and bring Israel to salvation. Second, Paul praises the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge. Okay, I agree with John Murray, and it's generally a good idea to agree with John Murray. But I agree with John Murray that we shouldn't make too fine a distinction between these two terms. He says, in general, knowledge refers to God's all-inclusive and exhaustive cognition and understanding. And wisdom refers to the arrangement and adaptation of all things to the fulfillment of his holy designs. What does that mean? That's a lot of big words. What he's saying is this. Riches refer to the overflowing, omnipotent goodness of God towards his redeemed. Riches are the fountain of God's grace. Wisdom and knowledge refers to the providential design of God in bringing those riches to his elect. When Paul thinks of the wisdom and knowledge of God in this context, let me tell you what he's thinking about. He's thinking of, for example, the exquisite beauty and perfection of the atonement, which he described in chapters 3 to 5. That atonement for sin in which God put Christ forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith in order that he might demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that God would be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. That's wisdom and knowledge. He's thinking of the wonder of God's design in sending Christ into the world in order to be the second Adam, in order to succeed where the first Adam failed and restore what the first Adam had lost. In other words, he's thinking Romans 5. 
Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And of course, he's thinking when he mentions the wisdom and the knowledge of God, he's thinking of that strange and sovereign plan whereby God hardens Israel in order that he might save the Gentiles and saves the Gentiles in order that they might make Israel jealous and makes Israel jealous in order that they might be saved and saves Israel in order that Christ might return and save his people and judge the earth and raise the dead and make all things new. All of redemptive history is a testimony to the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. When on the last day we stand on the peak of Mount Zion and look back upon human history from the perspective of eternity, we will declare in breathless wonder that our God has done all things well, including global pandemics. What God's doing right now He's doing well, which is why the church has no cause to fear. The second phrase of verse 33 focuses upon the actions which flow from the attributes of God's riches, wisdom, and knowledge. Paul uses two words to describe those actions, judgments and ways. Now, God's judgments usually have a negative connotation, his, his judgment of sinners, but it can more broadly refer to what are sometimes called his executive decisions concerning redemptive history, what God decides to do. So the judgments and ways of God are the outworking of his riches and wisdom and knowledge. And because God's riches and wisdom and knowledge are unfathomably deep, so his judgments, Paul says, are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable. Think about it. What else would we expect from the kind of mind described in the first half of verse 33? It should not surprise us then when we look at the past or we look at our present and we are confounded by what God does or does not do. It shouldn't surprise us when we don't understand his ways. They're unsearchable and inscrutable. It shouldn't surprise us when the actions or inaction of God do not make sense to us or seem strange to us, or perhaps even from our limited finite human perspective seem cruel and uncaring. It shouldn't surprise us. What else would you expect from judgments that are unsearchable in ways that are inscrutable? If God's ways made total sense to us, then we'd be in a heap of trouble because we are so often perplexed and mystified as to what we should do. And if God was operating on no more knowledge or wisdom than we have, we're in a mess. We need a God whose judgments are unsearchable and whose ways are inscrutable. Someone like us operating from our limited mental capacities would never be able to bring this royal mess called human history to a good and glorious conclusion. So thank God for his unsearchable judgments and his inscrutable ways. 
William Cooper, the 18th century hymn writer whose life was so often tormented by a debilitating depression, tried to commit suicide on at least three different occasions, failing each time. Prayed and prayed and prayed that God would take his depression away from him. It never happened. He could not understand why God did not answer his prayers. Nevertheless, he learned to trust in the truth of Romans 11.33. And so as he was reflecting upon the unsearchable judgments and the inscrutable ways of God, he wrote this hymn. God moves in a mysterious way. His wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill. He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. Now, I'm well aware that Romans 9 through 11, specifically what it has had to say about the sovereignty of God and his unconditional election of some to salvation and his just reprobation of others to condemnation has been, for many of you, hard. It's not only hard, it's scary. It's a side of God that some of you have never seen before. It's a side so immense and mysterious and wild and untamed and uncontrollable and sovereign and free. I'm well aware that the past four months in Romans 9 to 11 have probably left many of you with more questions than answers. And certainly with more questions than you had before. Before when your God was so much smaller and you had them all figured out. But I beg you to consider this. You don't want a God that you can figure out. You don't want a God you can tame. You don't want a God you can control. You don't want a God who is safe. You don't want a God who leaves the fate of the cosmos or the destiny of a human soul in the hands of sinners. You don't want a God who has to answer all of your questions and explain to you and justify all of his ways. You don't want a God that you can buy off with your works and with your gifts. You don't want a God who is merely a better version of yourself. You want a God you can worship. You want a God who is wholly other. You want a God who is a consuming fire. I love me some C.S. Lewis. And when I quote Lewis, I have to give the same qualification I gave with regard to John Stott earlier. I don't agree with everything Lewis ever wrote. Unlike Stott, Lewis wasn't a theologian. He was a professor of medieval literature. 
and he was a writer. And I love writers, the good ones anyway, because they help us to see truths that we are sometimes too dull and nearsighted to to see for ourselves. And Lewis does that for me. He helps me to see reality in clearer and bigger and brighter ways. In his Chronicles of Narnia series of children's books, which is a a quasi-allegory of redemptive history, although Lewis would have hated that description, Lewis reimagines Christ as this majestic lion named Aslan. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, there are two descriptions of Aslan that always come to my mind when I think of the wild and untamed and sovereign and free character of God. The first is early in the book when the Pevensey children um, first, or it's actually before the Pevensey children uh, have first met Aslan and they're just hearing about him for the first time. They're talking with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. The animals are anthropomorphic in this in this book. Is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and he's the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts is? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. The second description comes from near the end of the book, after the defeat of the white witch, after the Pevensey children have been crowned kings and queens of Narnia, and there's feasting and rejoicing in the land. Lewis writes this, But amidst all these rejoicings, Aslan himself quietly slipped away. And when the kings and queens noticed that he wasn't there, they said nothing about it. For Mr. Beaver had warned them, he'll be coming and going, he had said. One day you'll see him and another you won't. He doesn't like being tied down. And of course, he has other countries to attend to. It's quite all right. He'll often drop in. Only you mustn't press him. He's wild, you know. Not like a tame lion. That's the essence of what I'm trying to convey this morning. That's the essence of what Paul is trying to convey in these last four verses. God is glorious because he is wild and untamed. He is glorious because his judgments are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable. He is glorious because he is sovereign and free. It is God's sovereign freedom that Paul highlights in the two Old Testament quotations in verses 34 and 35. The first is from Isaiah 40, 13. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? If you'll notice, this verse corresponds to the wisdom and the knowledge of God in verse 33. And it's a rhetorical question. It's one that is asked in such a way that the answer is obvious. Who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become his counselor? The answer is no one. No one has known the depths of God's wisdom and knowledge. No one has ever advised God as to what he should do. God is sovereign and free in the determination of his righteous judgments. The second quotation is probably from Job 41.11. Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? This verse corresponds to the riches of God in verse 33. And again, it's a rhetorical question. Again, the answer is obvious. No one has ever given a gift to God that he might expect or demand or deserve repayment. No one has ever put God in his debt. No one has ever constrained God to act. No one has ever forced God's hand. God is sovereign and free in the demonstration of his mercy and grace and in his wrath and judgment. As Paul said in Romans 9, 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Man, man's willing and scheming and working and all of that doesn't have anything to do with that. What happens in God's mercy and judgment depends upon God, not man. Or two verses later, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. God is wild and untamed. He is sovereign and free. And that is why he is glorious. There's none like him. None. And that brings us to verse 36, which is the bottom, the end, the ground, the aim of Paul's argument. Because it expresses the chief end of man, the chief end of the cosmos, and the driving, consuming passion of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Why does our universe exist? And maybe more universes besides? Why is our universe 93 billion light years in diameter, filled with fiery nebula and spiraling galaxies? Why is there a Milky Way galaxy 105,000 light years in diameter? Why in one spiral arm about two-thirds of the way out from the center of the Milky Way galaxy is there a star? 865,000 miles in diameter comprised of burning hydrogen and helium gas and generating a massive amount of energy and a powerful magnetic field. Why is there a a planet orbiting this star at a distance of 93 million miles hurtling through space at 67,000 miles per hour, spinning upon its axis at 1,000 miles per hour? And why are all of these conditions perfectly infinitesimally tuned in order to sustain organic life on this planet that we call Earth? 
Why on this earth are there trees and rocks and mountains and canyons and giraffes and elephants and eagles and herons and ants and bees and trout and whales and clouds and lightning and everything else? Why? And why are there two-legged sentient creatures called man uniquely bearing the image of their creator, possessed of rationality and morality and spirituality, unlike any other being in the cosmos? And why does the creator love them so? And if he loved them, why did he plant a tree in the middle of the garden? And why did he ordain a serpent to be possessed by a fallen angel named Satan to tempt that first man and that first woman whom he loved so much? And where did that fallen angel come from? And why did the creator create him and ordain his fall? Those questions and thousands more are provoked by the book of Romans. And Paul has done his best to provide answers to many of them. And the answer to several of those questions is summarized in verse 32. For God has consigned all to disobedience in order that he might have mercy on all. But even that answer only opens up to thousands of more questions. Where does it all end? Where is the final answer? Is it just an infinite regression of questions that we'll we'll never explore the depths of? Why existence and reality? Why evil and suffering? Why election and reprobation? Why some but not all? Why Israel and not the other nations? Why, why, why? And I want you to know that the closest you will ever get to a final answer to any of those questions and a thousand more is verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. All things come from God. From his self-existent sovereign will. All things come through God, through the working of his omnipotent power. And all things are directed to God. That is to the demonstration of his ineffable glory. The coronavirus exists from God, through God, and to God in order that he might be demonstrated to be glorious. The final answer to every question is soli deo gloria. To the glory of God alone. Which brings me to the end of the study of Romans 1 to 11. And I think the most fitting way to conclude would be to frame the question around the glory of God. So I want you to think back 18 months with me. Paul began his indictment of the human race in chapter 1, by charging humanity with suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. What truth? What truth has mankind suppressed, leading to all of this mess called history? Well, if you follow Paul's argument down from verse 18 down to verse 25, you'll see that it's the truth that all things were created by God from him, are sustained by God through him and exist for the glory of God to him. In other words, Romans 11.36 is 
the truth that all men suppress. Watch what Paul does beginning in verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. They knew from him and through him, and they suppressed that truth so it didn't go to him. They did not give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They exchanged the God who spoke the universe into existence by the word of his power for snakes and cows. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. They traded the glory of God for bugs and birds and animals and men. So God judged them. Why? Because he will not give his glory to another. He will not allow people to think that all things that were created from him and through him ought not to be directed to him. All humanity has exchanged the glory of God for some other secondhand glory. They look at God either in creation or on their conscience or in the Bible, and they find Him either boring or false. And they turn to something else that they think will satisfy their souls. But at the end of 11 chapters of redemptive theology, we find that there exists a people who can really and truly add their sincere, heartfelt amen to the end of Romans 11.36. Why? Because by the grace of God, they've traded it back. Their eyes have been opened to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. And their their hearts have been awakened to his splendor and his majesty. And they've exchanged it back. And now they love the glory of God and they long to see him manifested in the universe forever. Why? Because it floods their hearts with joy. And so I end the last 18 months in Romans 1 to 11 by asking, what kind of person are you? Are you a Romans 1.25 person exchanging the truth about God for a lie and worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator? Or are you a Romans 11.36 person? who has become a Romans 11.36 person by progressing with God by the Spirit through chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, through Christ and the cross and the first Adam and the second Adam and the Spirit and the law and grace and the Gentiles and the Jews. And you can say now, yes, God is glorious. I see it. I love it. I want it. I worship him. Amen. You're one or you're the other. Are you a Romans 125 person? If so, I call upon you this morning to repent.
Ask God to open your eyes and to awaken your heart to see and love and rejoice in his glory. In the from him, through him, and to himness of God. If you're in a Romans 11.36 person, give thanks because you didn't do that. God called you. His call awakened you. You saw the evil exchange that you had made and you suddenly said, "Ah, what have I done? And you repented of your, your evil exchange of the glory of God for the glory of other things. And you turned to God in all of his magnificent glory in Christ and you embraced him as your only hope and savior and Lord. And you did that because that too came from God and through God. And so do what Paul does and send it right back to God and join with him today and say, to him be the glory now and forevermore.